ولقد كرمنا بني آدم وحملناهم في البر والبحر ورزقناهم ورزقناهم من الطيبات وفضلناهم على كثير ممن خلقنا تفضيلا أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the 10th and final episode of this podcast series titled Becoming Bani Adam, Exploring 12 Rishi'i Discussions on Human Ancestry. My name is Fatma Megji and I'll be introducing each podcast episode, which is an audiobook of a paper that I wrote a few years ago and is being narrated by Brother Justin Mashouf. Over the past nine episodes, we have gone on a journey together, exploring some of the most contentious questions about the tension and issues when trying to build a narrative of the Islamic view on human evolution. There are certain verses which, using hermeneutical principles, we can conclude certain things definitively and comfortably, like the miraculous creation of Adam from a non-evolutionary process, i.e. he did not have parents. However, other verses, like the one in Surah An-Nisa, verse 1, are understood to mean that we are only the children of Adam and Eve and this is through a vahiri meaning which gives us some level of confidence. Most Mufassirin, however, agree that this is a zuhur, and it is a zuhur that can be abandoned if we have definitive reasoning, if we have qat'i evidence that makes it impossible that we are only and solely the descendants of Adam and Eve, salam. The scientific discussions here that are relevant include the possibility that humanity went through a two-person bottleneck and that all of today's genetic diversity could have come through two individuals even if there are genetic markers from previous peoples. There is not much that suggests that this is impossible. However, this being said, it's complicated when we look at genetics and continental drift and these other ideas since Homo sapiens have occupied different continents for more than tens of thousands of years and have been spread across the globe for a very long time. So how we're related to these other Homo sapiens isn't entirely clear. And when you look at genetic evidence, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Is this possible or is it not? But as we mentioned in episode one, this paper and podcast series is not going to give you a conclusion. All we've done so far is put forward possibilities and things to think about. There are possible explanations that the Quranic verses, the ahadith give, and sometimes other explanations that we can use our creativity with. And there's various ways in which we can look at the subject. And as we'll see in today's episode, these questions are not really that important. The more important and concerning part of this discussion on human evolution is the implications and the language that is pushed in the scientific community. And there is a bias here that is important to look at and think about when navigating these issues and discussing them. There are some discussions that we will have in today's piece that are more relevant to a regular Muslim, to a regular practicing Muslim who's just trying to navigate this world, because there are some ways in which we can justify some of the language that I've brought forward as problematic, like the use of the word random. Some can argue that you can use the word random with God as a part of the picture, but the normal use of language for a regular Muslim has certain connotations in which the word random almost seems godless. And these are the topics that are going to be discussed in this conclusion today. I pray that this journey has been beneficial for you, as it has been for me, and I hope that after going through the conclusion in today's episode, the questions that arise are no longer bothersome, because they're not that important. The answers do not impact our metaphysical reality, nor do they impact our purpose in life, nor do they impact our reality as human beings, 
nor do they impact how we should act or what we should do in life. And the truth is that these questions are the ones that we should be asking versus questions that only an omniscient God and creator can and will know. As a final note, for those interested in listening to the audiobook in its entirety, without my introductions and transitions along the way, we will be releasing a special episode with the full audiobook of approximately 1 hour and 45 minutes, so please stay tuned for that. And with that, for the last time, we'll turn it over to Brother Justin Mashouf. Jazakumullahu khairan, and thank you for being with us in this journey. Conclusion Empirical Considerations for Quranic Interpretations Although a plethora of empirical data has been observed, collected, and analyzed by evolutionary biologists, many questions remain unanswered. New discoveries of fossils and developments in the understanding of genetics are made constantly, shaping and reshaping the way that the scientific world understands the history of life on Earth. Despite this plethora of data, much can be critiqued as to how this data is interpreted. Regardless of those criticisms, it is certain that there remain many questions in terms of the implications of this data on our understanding of God's Word. These are not issues that can be easily dismissed, and while some of these questions may make us uncomfortable due to the difficulty in understanding them, they also push us towards a more rigorous understanding of our interactions with the Quran, and to a certain degree, our Ahadith literature. This paper does not claim to have arrived at any definitive conclusion on these questions. It is a humble attempt to show a conversation between empirical data and exegetical literature with regards to the Quranic verses at hand. Moreover, as explained in Part 1, unless we have in indicators that suggest otherwise, like empirical impossibility, why would we move away from a prima facie literal interpretation? In this case, we do not have empirical impossibility. Rather, we have a literal understanding of the verses within the realm of empiric possibility, and a rich ahadith corpus that gives us an explanation for a lot of the empirical data that we have only discovered in recent years. This is not to say, however, that evolution cannot or should not be an explanation for the movements of God. If the idea of human evolutionary ancestry were to reach such a point that we were certain of the impossibility of Adam and Eve as our sole ancestors, we could understand the Quran in a slightly less literal manner. When discussing the relationship between interpretations of revelation and reason, and the tensions that may arise, Sheikh Haider Hoballah notes the approach adopted by the vast majority of Muslim scholars, which postulates that reason and revelation are separate and equal sources of understanding reality. As such, he writes, quote, If there should ever arise a contradiction between al-aql and al-wahi, then one ought to reinterpret the revealed texts in our possession through the tool of al-aql. This is because the import of revelation is subject to the interpretation and is not decisive, qat'i, the question arises as to what should be the approach of exegesis in this framework, and there have, in turn, arisen three different viewpoints. End quote. These three viewpoints are linguistic, ambiguity, symbolic speech, and allegoric speech. In this paper, we have shown how linguistic ambiguity could be a route through which one could still understand the Quran in a literal manner if one is convinced of human ancestral evolution as an absolute fact. The last of these three viewpoints, allegorical speech, could also be relevant someday. This viewpoint, he says, quote, surmises that Quranic words and anecdotes ought to be understood as didactic parables. For instance, if the theory of evolution seems to contradict the Genesis story of Prophet Adam, then one ought to reinterpret the verses in reference to this event as analogies and not actual historical events. End quote. However, 
Deciding to interpret the Quranic stories allegorically is not an easy decision to make. This is not a position that we found necessary nor feasible. If these stories are intended allegorically, then at what point did the Quranic stories move from allegory to historical accounts of prophetic history? This is a problem that would need to be addressed in detail if we were to take an allegorical interpretation for the story of Adam. It is not an easy conundrum to solve. From the empirical data explored, four key questions arose in which there seemed to be some levels of tension between empirical data and Quranic interpretation. Of the evidence explored, the current understanding of genetics is what causes the most tension. Genetics raise many questions and some doubts in terms of a possible conflict of empirical data with contemporary 12 Shia interpretations of the verses mentioned. However, these questions do not threaten the foundations upon which we understand God's word, and linguistic ambiguity is a useful tool when navigating this. Despite the questions that empirical data may raise, a literal understanding of the Quran continues to remain possible, even when taking a rigorous look at the empirical data upon which evolutionary theory is based. Evolutionary theory is one way of explaining empirical data, but it is not the only one. It is not outside the realm of empirical possibility to take the Quran at face value with Adam as the father of all mankind, nor is it impossible to contend that he existed 10,000 years ago. Nevertheless, we do not have conclusive answers to the questions that arise regarding the kind of Homo sapiens that existed arguably before Adam over 200,000 years ago. Nor do we completely understand the nature of the genetic similarity that lies in our DNA to these previous creatures. We do have a surprising or rather unsurprising confirmation from the Ahadith literature as to their existence, but we also have narrations telling us of their extinction and separation from our ancestry. These explanations and stories should be taken seriously if we are to have an honest conversation with our rich tradition. Other Considerations Although we have gone through a lengthy discussion on empirical data and its impact on Quranic interpretations, the conversation remains incomplete and until this point disconnected from a larger, more important discourse. There are other considerations that, while not directly related to the empirical evidence that we have explored, are essential to note when attempting to understand the origins of man. Firstly, it is important to understand the Quranic definition of humanness and how it overlaps with the anatomical definition of Homo sapiens, if at all. What is the insan, human, referred to in the Quran, and does it preclude pre-Adamic Homo sapiens? We may only be similar in visage to anatomically modern Homo sapiens that existed 200,000 years ago. This is a point worthy of reflection, with potential implications for this discussion. Perhaps our differences with previous Homo sapiens are not ones that can be observed biologically. Rather, these differences are metaphysical, existential, and essential. As such, it is possible that while we look identical biologically to these nasnas, our essential reality is essentially different. One of the defining features of Adam is the Ruh, granted him in the final step of his creation before God commands the angels and Iblis to prostrate to him. As dictated in the verse of the Quran, When your Lord said to the angels, Indeed, I am going to create a human out of dry clay, drawn from an aging mud. So when I have proportioned him and breathed into him my spirit, then fall in prostration before him. Thereat the angels prostrated, all of them. End quote. What is this Ruh? Did the Homo sapiens that existed 200,000 years ago have it? Is the Ruh consciousness? Even with all of today's scientific advancements, consciousness, while known as fact to all humans by virtue of experience, remains a scientific mystery. Its effects are clearly observed, but it cannot be traced precisely to any biological phenomenon. 
It is immaterial, as many things are. As such, there is no way of knowing when or if consciousness was a development, and if these pre-Adam humans had a form of consciousness, if at all. It is also interesting to note that in line with the timeline where Adam appears 10,000 years ago, there is a sharp increase in human advancement and population that is observed in the fossil record. As discussed, it is unknown what triggered this advancement, known as the Neolithic Revolution. Perhaps consciousness and the bestowal of the aql to mankind could answer this puzzle, explaining the sudden intelligence of the Homo sapiens. There is so much that we cannot claim to know with the limited knowledge at our disposal, where we only observe and see what is around us of this lower life. As the verse reads, They know just an outward aspect of the lower life, but they are heedless of the latter life. End quote. Chance as agnostic vocabulary. Another major area of critique is that the premises and analysis of the fossil record, genetics, etc., upon which evolutionary theory stands, is based on a secular worldview. This worldview denies or ignores that the world runs with the direct intervention of an omnipotent creator. I read more than 100 studies on the evidence for human evolution for the purposes of this paper. Incredulously, I noted that all arguments for human evolution were written with the terms probable, unlikely, random, and chance. There is a worldview inherent to this rhetoric. These words and vocabulary, while in the guise of objectivity, make statements and inferences about the way the world works. Justifications for human evolution are based on presuppositions of chance and randomness, based on unexplainable observations of the world and how it works materially. However, this vocabulary infers a secular worldview in which there is no direct intervention and intentional shaping by a sentient god. Chance vocabulary is implicitly written with the connotations that deny immaterial influence. Imperative to the discussion is that the existence of an omnipotent God who intervenes in all facets of the universe, chance becomes a figment of a godless imagination. It is the secular or agnostic word used to describe the decisions of God in a universe where we don't know how he decides things. It is a concept that does not acknowledge his involvement and intervention, and arguably implicitly denies it. This secularization of science presents a problem that William Chittick notes. Quote, educated Muslims generally see things in terms of the worldview that has informed the Western tradition since the beginning of the modern period. This worldview is grounded in what Nusser calls a sensualist and empirical epistemology, and its net result has been the reidification and objectification of the cosmos. The world and all its contents, including human beings, in most of their roles, have been turned into isolated objects standing in ontological, spiritual, and moral vacuums. End quote. This explanation could be applicable here. Where evolutionists have omitted God from the story, the view that the world moves in motions of randomness and changes based on arbitrary chance necessitates the belief that either God does not exist or it ostracizes his role to one in which he is a passive spectator who does not intervene in the happenings of the world. If we were to rework all the empirical data explored in this paper with a worldview that accepted the existence of God as an intervening active force, how would our interpretations change? Would we continue to see human ancestral evolution as more probable, or would we see it as simply one possible mechanism through which God created the world? More importantly, are we taking Quranic and Ahadith literature with equal considerations as plausible explanations considering that they are empirically possible? If chance as a concept becomes obsolete, 
the entire discourse of human ancestral evolution as the most plausible explanation for empirical evidence changes. Perhaps a new discourse is an endeavor worth taking. To be human and insan. In addition to the secular ideas foundational to these explanations, the underpinnings of these notions result in the reduction of mankind to nothing more than a random set of occurrences. These notions denigrate our understanding of ourselves to animals and products of our DNA. At best, this worldview ignores our metaphysical and existential realities and attempts to define our essence and behavior through material explanations alone. But in many ways, the implications are deeper than that. This worldview arguably robs human beings of their metaphysical and deeper reality, an existential relationship with God. In the Quranic worldview, this omission is tantamount to losing oneself. As revealed in Quran verse 59-19, Do not be like those who forget Allah, so he makes them forget their own souls. It is they who are the transgressors. End quote. The Quranic story of mankind clearly intends to teach human beings about their distinctive features and what distinguishes them from the animals and beings that surround them. This distinctive feature is what has enabled humans to become God's viceroy on earth. It is what makes Homo sapiens, insan, created in the best of forms. This potential of human beings to reach such a lofty state is intimately tied with their connection to God. But it is not the only potential that we have. In a famous narration explaining the nature of humanity, it is narrated that someone came to Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, peace be upon him, and asked him if the angels were higher or the sons of Adam. He responds by quoting Imam Ali, peace be upon him, quote, God created angels with aql, intellect, but without animalistic desires, shahwa. He created beasts, animals, with desires, but no intellect, and in the sons of Adam, he put both of these. So, whoever is able to overcome their desires with their intellect, he or she is better than the angels. And whoever allows their desires to come over their intellect, he or she is worse than the beasts. End quote. There is a material and animalistic side to human beings. This cannot be denied. Yet, this is not all that we are, nor is it how we are meant to identify ourselves. However, this is precisely how the scientific world defines man as another species, the product of chance and random mutations. We are but another animal and nothing more. It is the implications of this language of man as an animal, the product of randomness, probability, and chance that concern a theistic worldview more so than the fossil record, genetic sequences, and whatever it might show. Evolutionary theory now informs every aspect of the human sciences, from the psychology of eating habits to gender differences to sexual preferences, human evolution is the flimsy foundation upon which these explanations stand. Essentially, the implications of human evolution and the language upon which it finds clout is worse than the theory of evolution itself. Evolution has morphed into more than just one plausible explanation for empirical data. It has become doctrine. In the words of Sayyid Hussein Nasr, quote, Evolution is the peg of the tent of modernism. And if it were to fall down, the whole tent would fall on top of the head of modernism. End quote. This paper should not detract from the point that whether we take the story of Adam literally or symbolically, the message of the Quran is clear. Mankind is not like any other creature that has been created. God has preferred the children of Adam over all others. There is something noble and divine in humans, through the ruh, spirit, aql, intellect, and fitrat, godly inclined nature, that allows the sons of Adam to reach God's proximity. This fact does not change, no matter how we understand the story of Adam and our genetics.
The implications of this understanding of human nature remains constant for believers when considering the purpose of their lives, drawing life's value from connection to God. It is arguably the primary purpose for the existence of this story in the Quran, and discussions on human origins should not ignore this point. Our creation was an intentional, planned act of God, and God intervenes at every moment. There's no such thing as randomness or chance in a world where God knows and controls every aspect of his kingdom. As God states in the Quran, Blessed is he in whose hands is all sovereignty, and he has power over all things. He who created death and life, that he may test you to see which of you is best in conduct. And he is the Almighty, the All-Forgiving. He created seven heavens in layers. You do not see any discordance in the creation of the All-Beneficent. Look again. Do you see any flaw? Look again once more. Your look will return to you humbled and weary.